1: Hello and welcome to episode 83 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Before we begin, a huge congratulations to friend of the show Chris Wood and his wife who've just welcomed their daughter to the world this week. You know what that means, Chris? On those late nights and early mornings, lots more time to write some fantastic episodes. Well done to you both. Also, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon. Patreon. But especially this week's new supporters, that's Susan Cowell, Lucy Sparrow, Joe Woodcliffe and Kelly Palacio. I recently released, well just yesterday, bonus episode 16 for Patreon supporters. And as well as those 16 episodes, there is also access to other exclusive content. This week I'll be recording a special video just for Patreon supporters talking about the future of this podcast. Just head to patreon.com slash to join this special club. This week's episode, for the first time, examines a case of corporate manslaughter. The offence was created to rectify the problem identified by a 17th century English judge who said that companies have a soul to damn but nobody to kick. I'm also delighted that this week's show is sponsored again by The Economist. For over 170 years, The Economist has helped inform our thinking on a range of issues. Not just economics and finance, it covers a range of subjects from politics and business to science, technology, arts and the environment. There's lots in the current issue for fans of true crime across the globe. Two articles stood out for me. The first one was about the death of Eli Khalil, the man behind the incredible coup in Equatorial Guinea, who died in suspicious circumstances after reportedly slipping on stairs and breaking his neck. There's certainly scope for an interesting investigative podcast there. There is also some really interesting insights about the AHAB corporate scandal in the Gulf. Now, I've covered Ponzi schemes before on this podcast, but this one takes it to another level. Take a look at the article on economist.com or get a print copy of the magazine today to learn more. The Economist is the smart guide to the forces changing your world. Get your copy today. And the good news is that to receive a free print copy of The Economist, you just need to text CRIME to 78070. So support this podcast and receive a free copy of The Economist by texting CRIME to 78070. Thank you. So let's set some context for today's story. Top of the UK charts in March 1993 was Young It Heart by The Bluebells with Shaggy at number two with Oh Carolina. No, I won't sing it. At number four was another classic tune, Mr. Loverman. Shubba. Awesome stuff. The US charts was topped by Snow with Informer, having recently dislodged Whitney Houston with I Would Always Love You. In Australia, the top-selling single this year was Meatloaf, With I would do anything for love, brackets, but I won't do that, close brackets. In the news, the blizzard of 93 hit the northeastern United States. And also in the US this month, Rodney King took the witness stand and described to the jury the events as he remembered them following his horrific attack at the hands of the LA Police Department. This was also the month of the awful Warrington bomb attacks in northwest England when IRA bombs in the town centre of Warrington claimed the life of 3-year-old Jonathan Ball and injured more than 50 other people. On the 25th of March, the blast claimed a second fatality when 12-year-old Timothy Parry died in hospital from his injuries. Just a dreadful, dreadful event. Today's story is based in Lyme Regis, which is a beautiful town on the coast of the English county of Dorset. 155 miles southwest of London, 25 miles west of Dorchester, and 25 miles east of Exeter, the harbour wall known as the Cobb appears in Jane Austen's novel Persuasion, and in the John Fowles novel The French Lieutenant's Woman, and in the 1981 film of the same name, which was partly shot in Lyme Regis. I love it down there, and this beautiful part of England is popular with water sports. And on a summer's day, there are numerous water-based craft on the water. Well, except for those horrendous jet skis, of course. It can be a lovely scene as visitors and locals stroll by the water's edge on a sunny day. And in March 1993, six teenage girls, two boys and a teacher from Southway Comprehensive School in nearby Plymouth launched from the St Albans Venture Centre at Lyme Regis, with two instructors to canoe to nearby Charmouth. It was the first full day of their week-long trip, and spirits were high. Yeah, they're having a lot of fun. It's a really pleasant paddle across the beautiful bay, which should take around two hours. It was around 10am and fine weather, with a gentle breeze. As holidaymakers watched the party leave, one couple commented to each other, It was a beautiful day. They all had wetsuits, life jackets and helmets, And we commented to each other, look at those kids, they're going to have such a good time. The trip started out well, but as so often happens on the water, things then started to change very quickly. Trouble began almost immediately with teacher Norman Pointer capsizing a number of times and then being violently sick. Another student, Dean Sayer, capsized very quickly too. Indeed, it was so close to the shore that he was able to stand, but the group decided to carry on. As they headed towards Charmouth, there is a gap in the cliffs known as the Charmouth Gap, where the river Char flows down into the sea. At this point, the protection from the wind offered by the high cliffs is gone, and the wind can whip across the water. It's a point where windsurfers often get into trouble, and they're pushed out to sea. An engineer from Lyme's inshore lifeboat, Graeme Turner, later told the Independent newspaper that the flotilla of canoes were pushed deadly away from the land and against the incoming tide, with the paddlers' bodies acting like sails, scattering slowly over an area of five miles. The morning wind was northerly, continued Graeme Turner, and while they were out there, it had changed to southwest. by which time they were in rough water. One and a half miles out from the shore, conditions were very severe, certainly much too rough for any canoes to stay upright. Quickly, all but one canoe overturned and began to sink, leaving the group holding on to the last upright canoe. The wind was now strong cooling the exposed group and the sea was only 9 degrees. The group was now in big trouble. They sang to keep their spirits up and they blew whistles to try to attract the attention of passing ships, but all to no avail. The handyman at the St Albans Activity Centre was scheduled to meet the group at Charmouth. But by 12.25pm, the canoeist still hadn't arrived, and so he reported them missing to the manager of the centre, Joseph Stoddart. Stoddart spent half an hour in Lyon Bay searching for the party, but there was no sign. He then increasingly frantically drove along the shore, hoping that the group had washed up along the coast somewhere. But again, there was no sign of any of the canoeists. Meanwhile in the water, the situation had got worse and was now desperate they were fighting for their lives. Two students, Samantha Stansby and Emma Hartley, in desperation started to swim for the shore. Others were suffering from severe hypothermia and were barely conscious in terrible, scary scenes in the rough waves. A fishing boat, Spanish Eyes, spotted a red kayak on the water, two miles southeast of Lyme Regis. The skipper radioed the Portland Coast Guard, which was their first knowledge of the tragedy unfolding. Seven minutes before this call was made, the last canoe sank, and the children and the instructors and the teacher were left helpless, their life jackets becoming waterlogged. Lifeboats were now sent out for the rescue operation and three helicopters flew to the scene. By 5.55pm, eight people had been rescued from the water and minutes later two others were discovered washed up eight miles east at Bridport Beach and they were rushed to Weymouth Hospital. At 5.10pm, the Portland Coast Guard was notified that 11 people were in the party and one was still missing. Two helicopters and the lifeboats headed out back to sea to continue the search. Meanwhile in Plymouth, June Malforth, the acting head teacher of Southway Comprehensive School, received a call just before 6 pm from teacher John Ellis, who was at the St. Albans Center. He mentioned a problem with the trip, but reassured her that the pupils were being picked up by a helicopter. Within minutes after telephoning Dorset Police, she learnt that one of her pupils had died. Meanwhile, back out at sea, ten minutes later at 6.10pm, the final member of the group was plucked from the water by a Sea King helicopter. Back at school, the list of eight canoeists were with staff and they knew the situation was grave, but they didn't yet know who had died. But just after 9pm came a terrible call, confirming that 16-year-old Simon Dunn had died at the scene and that three others were in a critical condition. In a state of shock, June Morforth called in the Sixth Form tutors and prepared to break the news to parents. And then two hours later, a fax arrived from Dorset police with a list of the dead who'd been identified by the head of Sixth Form, Norman Poynter, who'd been out with the students and had survived the seven-hour ordeal. As well as Simon Dunn, Dean Sayer, aged 17, and 16-year-olds Claire Langley and Rachel Walker also died in the disaster. After a terrible sleepless night, Jean Moforth arrived back in school at 7am and told the 57 staff what had happened and took assemblies in year groups to break the news to the 940 pupils. There were three gaps in the A-level English class, something everyone found hard to come to terms with, she later said in the aftermath of the tragedy. Meanwhile, in Lime Bay, the Southway Comprehensive school bus remained in the centre's parking area. A staff car in the driveway nearby had a sticker in its window saying, children should be seen and not hurt. A poignant reminder of events. Talking to the Plymouth Herald newspaper, Simon Dunn's parents told of their experience. Sylvia and Noel Dunn were at home watching the news, when the activity centre they'd sent their eldest son to on a school trip suddenly appeared on the headlines. He was supposed to be having the time of his life at St Albans Centre, an adventure holiday camp at Lyme Regis, but Simon, along with three of his friends, never came home. Knowing something was seriously wrong, Sylvia and Noel went to the school, where their 16-year-old son attended sixth form. When Simon's name was called out by a teacher in the school hall, Sylvia was taken into another room, and the news was broken to her that Simon had drowned on the canoe trip. At the same time, Noel, who'd gone home to check answer phone messages for any news, saw a police car pulling up outside their house, knowing then, after spending so long in the police force himself, that this could only mean one thing. His precious son was gone. Both their lives sunk into darkness, and as they described it, pandemonium followed. They were driven by a police officer to a hospital over 70 miles away, where it was like a scrum, with press scrambling outside the front doors for any update on the tragic events, events that rocked not just Plymouth but the whole country. Sylvia and Noel were taken in the back entrance to avoid any intrusion. When things had calmed down, Noel turned to the officer who had driven them there and asked how many students had died. Recalling the events 25 years on, Noel said, I asked were there any other children involved and he said, I can't tell you, Noel. I asked how many more, one, two, three and when I got to four he said, I didn't tell you that. And it later transpired, as we've said, that Dean Sayer and Claire Langley and Rachel Walker had also died. Pupils Emma Hartley, Joanna Wills, Samantha Stansby and Maria Rendell, teacher Norman Poynter and instructors Karen Gardiner and Anthony Mann were rescued. But Simon, Dean, Claire and Rachel, who would have celebrated her 17th birthday two days later, were swept away. Survivors later told how Simon Dunn had joked and sung songs to keep his friend's spirits up as they battled to stay alive. Simon, who was well known as a prankster with a wicked sense of humour, led other victims in a chorus of eight red canoes sinking in the water to the tune of ten green bottles during their agonising wait to be rescued. But just hours later, Sylvia and Noel were in the same room with their dead son and reality hit. One survivor, 17-year-old Maria Rendell, cried as she told the independent newspaper how her friends passed out, became delirious and turned blue with cold in the water as those who were stronger tried to give mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Marie said, We didn't have any flares on the canoes, and when we talked to Tony, the instructor, he said he didn't really feel they were necessary because we were being picked up at midday. Only the instructors were provided with spray decks on their canoes, and from early on Norman Pointer, their teacher, was unable to keep his canoe upright. The pupils managed to keep together by linking arms after their canoes capsized one by one, until all were clinging to that of 17-year-old Samantha Stansby, who survived the tragedy. In the sea, the pupils linked arms and tried to kick to shore. Karen Gardner, one of the instructors, remained with them. The other, Tony Mann, drifted out to sea with Norman Pointer. We were all very tired, but we kept kicking our legs, and we didn't notice at first that Claire had passed out and Karen went over to see her. I think she gave her mouth to mouth, but she was so quiet, her legs weren't moving, Marie said. But then she thought she was going to die herself. Later on, Sam and Emma decided to swim together to shore. They got quite far ahead. We thought they'd made it. In the group that was left of us, Simon was starting to panic. He was delirious. I could hear him breathing very loudly. And then he didn't seem to be breathing anymore. He went very quiet. Marie tried to resuscitate him, but it was impossible because his teeth were so tightly clenched. Dean Sayer also became delirious, trying to kick out when the helicopters appeared, later that evening. They obviously couldn't see us, although they were quite close, Marie said. Dean was waving, and Rachel was whistling, and Claire didn't know what was going on. Then they stopped and saw us, and Rachel passed out and Dean did as well. They were all blue with cold. These accounts are just heartbreaking to hear, and it's impossible to imagine how it was to actually live through this experience. As more similar accounts surfaced in the coming days, Britain as a whole reeled from the shock of the tragedy. The pressure led to the managing director of the company that looked after the activity centre, Peter Kite, along with the day-to-day manager, Jonathan Stoddart, facing trial for four counts of corporate manslaughter. The evidence heard at Winchester Crown Court was shocking. It was revealed that nine months before the tragedy in Lyme Bay, the operators of the activity centre had received a letter from two experienced instructors warning of issues with safety. The letter contained a stark warning saying, we think you should have a very careful look at your standards of safety, otherwise you may find yourselves trying to explain why someone's son or daughter will not be coming home. The instructors sent the letter after leaving their employment after just five weeks at the centre, saying that there was most definitely not one person here on this site technically qualified to instruct. Because of a shortage of staff, they said that young people were literally thrown in at the deep end. The jury were told of a two and a half hour delay before centre manager Stoddart alerted the Coast Guards. He was first alerted by a centre employee who had reported that the party had not returned from the trip. Stoddart, as we heard, then made land and sea searches for them. With the group three hours overdue, and at the suggestion of the Lyme Regis harbour master, he finally relented and called the Coast Guard. There were other fundamental safety failings. Jeff Good, a director of coaching for the British Canoe Union, who had taught canoeing at sea for a number of years, commented that the faults were so serious and so numerous. The youngsters were so inexperienced they could not even paddle the kayaks in a straight line. The two instructors carried no flares or radios. They did not understand how offshore winds affected the canoes or the best way to ride a capsized craft or when an emergency was taking place. Crucially, they didn't tell the children how to inflate their life jackets, rendering them useless. The pupils had practised only in the swimming pool before tackling the waters of the English Channel and they carried no distress flares. No one at St Albans Centre had even checked the weather forecast the court heard. In his defence, Stoddart said he'd intended the canoeists to follow a coast-hugging route that day and not go out to the open sea. He bore the responsibility for allowing the two instructors to lead the expedition because he believed in their abilities his QC told the court that it was not a wise decision and it haunted him now, but this did not amount to gross negligence. As the jury foreman returned majority verdicts of 10 to 2 on each of the four charges against him and his company, Kite, who was married with a six-month-year-old daughter, mouthed the words, unbelievable, before standing open-mouthed. He was sent to prison for three years and his company fined £60,000. Kite's co-defendant, Joseph Stoddart, the manager of the St Albans Centre in Lyme Regis, was formally acquitted of four manslaughter charges after the jury failed to reach a majority verdict. Like many, he left the court in floods of tears. Mr Justice Ognell told Kite that he'd been convicted of criminal negligence, but what clearly separates this case from any other of its kind is the notice you were given in chillingly clear terms of the risks you were running. Those dire forecasts became a reality, with your complete failure to heed it and to act. Four young lives were lost in dreadful circumstances, because they and their friends were taken on an expedition, which common sense alone dictated should never have happened. The judge referred to the letter written to Kite nine months before the tragedy, by the two former instructors at the centre, warning him of possible fatal consequences unless safety was improved. He said, You must have known what was required of you and your company. I regret to say that to a degree you are more interested in sales than safety. The sentence I pass on you cannot bring those children back, but it must also serve as a message to those in offer and conduct these activities. The judge paid tribute to the four survivors, Maria Rendell, Samantha Stansby Johanna Wills and Emma Hartley, but added, Any lessons learned or tributes paid to those who survived can be of no comfort to the parents of the children who died. Condolences are such empty words. They died on the brink of their adult lives, even though they were, in truth, still only children. Following the tragedy, and national outcry by the media led to the Activity Centres Act of 1995, This act required UK centres that provided certain activities to under-18s on a commercial basis to have a licence. The government also published detailed national guidance of effective and safe management of school trips. I'm sure many of us moan about seemingly petty health and safety, and for teachers arranging school trips, the paperwork can be lengthy. But surely this is preferable to anyone else having to go through the agony of the friends and families of those who lost their lives in Lyme Bay that fateful afternoon in 1993. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It is, I think, so chilling to imagine what the group went through on those waters as the situation quickly turned from difficult to utterly terrifying. This was the only successful prosecution for corporate manslaughter before the Corporate Manslaughter and and Corporate Homicide Act of 2007. What do you think? Should Peter Kite have been held responsible for the deaths? It is clear that others also felt badly in their responsibilities that day too, so it wasn't purely his fault. But how do you go through life having been found guilty of this crime? The responsibility. In fact, Kite appealed and his sentence was reduced to just 14 months. But even now, if he's still alive, first thing every morning and just before he falls asleep, this still must be on his mind, mustn't it? And for the poor young adults who lost their lives, who knows what they could have achieved in the last 25 years? Our hearts go out to their friends and family, not just for their deaths, but the lack of opportunity to fulfil their potential. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Please join us in our Facebook group to discuss this story and all other aspects of UK True Crime. And to support the show and gain access to 16 full-length bonus episodes and other exclusive content, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. Finally, please support my sponsor The Economist by texting the word CRIME to 78070. So that is all from me until we speak again. So for now, cheerio.